Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, so glad that you were here. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Believe it or not, we're in week number seven of this preaching series that we are calling From Rags to Righteous. Now, besides being exceptionally clever, if I do say so myself, I didn't come up with it. But nonetheless, it's also a title that reminds us of what the book of Romans is all about. You see, when we come to know Christ, a supernatural transformation takes place. It's not merely ordinary. God, through his spirit, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, makes us into a new creation. The old has passed away, Paul says, behold, the new has come. Now, not only does God give us a new heart for Oaks, but he also takes the raw material of our personalities and our gift profiles, and he doesn't so much change them as he does, he marshals them into a new direction under a new Lord, a new master into service for him. And we see this fully on display in the book of Romans with the apostle Paul. Remember who Paul was before he came to know Christ. He was a Jew's Jew. He was raised in Tarsus, which was a cultural center. He was raised and trained as a Pharisee. He was zealous in the law. Paul could speak multiple languages. He knew all the philosophers. He knew all the poets. He had this keen intellect. He was, became part of the school of Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous of uh, the Jewish leaders of the time. Um, he was marshalling all of this for the sake of persecuting the church. Then on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, in effect, Paul, I'm going to take your intellect, I'm going to take your, your wit, your, your passion, I'm going to take all your education and all your learning, and I'm going to harness it, not in opposition to me, but in service to me. And the book of Romans is where we see all of Paul's aptitudes so clearly on display. We've just gotten done through chapter one, and Remember just how relentless Paul has been. He is kind of like logic on fire. As we saw last week, he, he proceeds to perform this sort of spiritual dissection and autopsy of the Roman world, of the Gentile world, of non-Jews. Remember, these were people who were born and raised apart from God's law and God's covenant and God's promise. And remember, Paul calls them out. He calls them out for sexual perversion. He calls them out for suppressing the truth. He calls them out for denying the reality of the very creator who made them. Now understand something. When you, if you were a Jew in the church at Rome, a Jewish Christian, and you were reading this chapter one, then you would have been eating this up, right? See, we can imagine him saying, that's right, Paul. You tell them like it is. Dirty, rotten, Gentiles, unclean, unrighteous, Roman occupiers, Greek philosophers, Way to go, Paul. Give it to them good. Now, that might have been, let's be honest, some of our responses as we heard from Romans 1 last week. Many of us probably gave a hearty amen to the indictment that Paul gives against our own corrupt culture. But now, Paul wants to do something different. He says, I don't want to just have something to say to them out there. I want to say something to you in here the religious folk. And that's where we're going to be today in Romans chapter 2. So if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. Romans 2, 1 through 16. A word 
to us the religious. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're just going to like be right up front with you this morning and say, this is a hard text. Lord, it's full of um, images of judgment and wrath and fury and Um, We wrestle with those things where we confess that those are not culturally palpable ideas. They're really even uncomfortable for us so oftentimes. But Lord, we do want to claim a promise here. You tell us that all of your scripture is God-breathed. All of it's breathed out by you. And it's useful for us for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we really want to lay claim to that promise this morning, Lord, with this text. Lord, open our eyes. Open our hearts. Help us to see what you want us to see as your people. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. All right, class of Four Oaks, we are going to learn a new word this morning. All right? It's so new, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, but we're going to give it a shot anyway. Prosopopeia. Okay? I could make you all say it three times fast, but we won't, we won't go there. Prosopopeia. What is that? It's a rhetorical device that ancient writers often used as they were writing, they would sort of anticipate how the people they were writing to would respond to what they were saying. And that they in turn would sort of craft a hypothetical retort. Now this is kind of like what it's been, what it's like for those of you who've been married for any length of time. You know there reaches a point where you know your spouse so well and your spouse knows you so well that you begin to complete their thoughts for them. Have you gotten to that point yet? Don't worry, it's coming. It's going to happen, right? You know what they are going to say. Husbands, your wives know what you are going to say before you even know what you know you're going to say, right? And we can find that highly annoying, let's be honest. That's Paul. 
See, Paul is a Jew's Jew. Paul has been born and raised a Jew. He knows how the Jews think. He knows what makes them tick. And he is anticipating this whole time how they are processing what he's been saying in chapter 1. He knows that these religious folk are saying, way to go, Paul. Give it to them straight. But then Paul says, but hold on, oh man. Therefore, I've got something to say to you, you religious folk. See, he says, I, in essence, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking about passing judgment on all the irreligion that's going on out there. I know you're angry at the world. I know you're angry at the culture. I know you're, I know you're upset, righteously so maybe. But Paul says, I want to say, I'll, I'll take care of them. God will take care of them. But I want to say something to you. I want to say something to you, O people of God. And so Paul is going to address three things in this passage. And here we go. First of all, he's going to talk to them about their inward attitudes. Second, he's going to tie this to their outward actions. And finally, at the end, he's going to point them upward to their affections for God. So we've got inward, outward, upward. And so here we go. Inward attitudes. You'll notice right off the bat, the word judges or judging or judgment just leaps out at you in this text, does it not? In fact, Paul uses it nine different times. And what's interesting about this fact about judging or being judgmental or not judging, there was a survey recently taken of all the unchurched people in North America, a representative sample. And the most popular verse from Jesus' teaching that people could most readily identify was which one? This idea of judging. Matthew 7, 1 through 2, in fact, from the Sermon on the Mount. Even if people had never been in church, they they, they love this verse. Ready? Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Now, it's obvious, is it not, why this verse is so popular in our wider culture. It's just basically interpreted as, Pastor Paul, you do your thing. I do my thing. Don't hate, don't judge, we're all good, let's just leave each other alone, right? Look the other way, nothing to see here. But this passage, undoubtedly, church, is one of the most misquoted, misunderstood, misused verses in all of Scripture. Jesus is not saying don't pass judgments. After all, think about what he says in John chapter 7. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see, we must pass judgments if we're going to walk faithfully before God. Parents, if you want to be a faithful parent, you're going to have to judge righteously. You're going to have to, to judge what's, what's appropriate for my child, what's not appropriate for my child. You're, you're going to have to make judgments in your moral life, your personal life. We have to do this. The issue that Paul is pointing to here and that Jesus points to is simply this. The issue is not if you judge or whether you should judge, but how you should judge. You see, there is a difference in making judgments that are humble and fair and kind and righteous and wise and full of truth of God's word. There's a big difference between that kind of judging and then what we might want to call judgmentalism, which is a spirit of exacting that's cruel, overbearing, critical, resentful, you get, the, you get the idea, overbearing, hypocritical. That's what was happening in the church in Rome. 
See, look at verse one. He puts it this way. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Or do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? See how, see what Paul did there? That quickly escalated, didn't it? That turned around very quickly. See, it seems that some in the church, the religious folk, the Jewish Christians, those who were born and bred in the equivalent of the Southern Bible Belt, were boasting about all the advantages and blessings of what it meant to be the people of God. After all, they said, we have the law, Paul. Next week, we're going to find out, Paul, we have circumcision. Paul, we're the spiritual blue bloods. We have the cultural equivalent, right? My, my granddaddy founded this church, and then his granddaddy and his granddaddy. This is our church, and, and we were born and raised here, and all that kind of good stuff. And Paul, is, Paul, Paul knows this, but listen to what he says. Listen to what he says back at the text. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What is Paul saying here? He's saying the Gentiles, even the Gentiles who don't have the law, even they know right from wrong. They know because the law is written on their hearts. They have a, a, a conscious, so to speak. But you religious folk, on the other hand, what good is having the law, right, if you don't obey it? See, they were oh so quick to point out the sins of the Gentiles, the world, the broader culture, the people that are taking this world to hell in a handbasket. But they were blinded to their own shortcomings, right? And they were like, oh, well, you know, Pastor Paul, come on. I don't sleep around. I mean, I'm not beating anybody up or not abusive. Yeah, but what about those websites you're visiting? Or the way you treat your employees? Or those shortcuts you take on your taxes? See, these are all germinating from an inward attitude. And it exposes, and this is what Paul is wanting to do, he's exposing their corrupt judgmental, hypocritical, inward attitude. And Paul wants them to know, and Paul wants us to know, and this is particularly hard in the specific culture and the era and the time of human history that we find ourselves, we want to believe so badly that the biggest problems that our culture is facing are those that are out there. And God is once again going to say, I've got that under control. What you need to be most concerned about are the problems in here. Let me ask you a question before we leave this point. Who are the Gentile equivalents in your life? And by that I mean, who are the person or the groups that really get you worked up? I mean, that really, I mean, you get righteously indignant. You, you, you just, you have, a, let's be honest, inwardly, a lot of disdain, a lot of anger, a lot of suspicion. Is it a political figure or a political party? Is it the media? Is it an ethnic group? Let's make it a little more personal. Or is it a family or a neighbor or a spouse or a friend? Maybe it's someone in this very room. And God says, don't you worry about that. You worry about you. See, Paul is pointing out their inner attitudes because they in turn are giving birth to a variety of outward actions. That's our second point. 
Here, Paul says, you are judging. But the thing you need to be most concerned about, Paul seems to be saying here, is, is not your judging. It's, it's, it's God's judgment, right? See, God's judgment is not presented here, church, as a hypothetical possibility. In fact, it's, it's, it's communicated here as a very real, fixed, definite certainty. Look at verse 5. The day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, we've been talking about from Romans 1 how there is a present judgment, right? And that present judgment takes the form of God giving over people to their own sin. Instead of restraining them by his common grace, he says, if, you, if this is the way you want it, if that's the path you want, then I'm going to let you go on and do your thing. And, the, and, it's, and as we saw last week, the things that our culture um, lowers itself to are themselves the act of judgment. They're the act of God removing his restraining grace. But the, the judgment that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 2 is not the present judgment. Paul's talking about a future judgment. He's talking about an eschatological judgment. And he writes in 2 Thessalonians about this in a little more detail. Here's what he says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And church, this is not a hypothetical judgment. It is a date certain at a date time when God says all the secrets of the world will be laid bare. In one way or another, whether out of joyful submission or out of pure fear, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here's the crucial question. And there's no more important question, I think, than you can ask this morning than this. What will this judgment of God's be based upon? In other words, we know God will judge all mankind, but what will he judge? What's the criteria? What's the standard? And if there is going to be a judgment and, and we believe the word of God is true, then there is no more important answer to this question. And Paul gives us the answer. Look at verse 6. He will render each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The thing you've got to love about the Apostle Paul, he is never ambivalent about anything, is he? He does not deal in grays or shades of gray. This is fundamentally black and white. Paul says, at that day, God is going to judge every work of mankind. And those who have sought to do well, to seek for glory and honor and immortality, he gives eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, or practicing evil, there will be wrath and fury. Now, 
Here's a principle of biblical interpretation that I want us to wrap our minds around. Because as one of my seminary profs often said, you can quote scripture and commit heresy. You can quote scripture and do great harm to people's spiritual life unless you let scripture interpret scripture. Unless you take the whole counsel of God's word. So in Romans 3, which we'll get to at some point, Paul is going to make something crystal clear. And church, you need to hear me say this loudly and clearly. Paul is going to say that we are justified. We are declared righteous. Our sins are cleaned from our slate. We are granted eternal life, not because of how obedient we are to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God that no one should boast. So knowing that Paul is not teaching works righteousness in Romans, he's not contradicting himself, Paul's not dense, Paul has not forgotten how to be an apostle between chapter 2 and chapter 3, we have to ask, what are we to do with this passage? What are we to do with this? This is... Pastor Paul, this is some heavy-duty stuff. Sounds like he's saying if you do good, you go to the good place. If you go bad, you go to the bad place. Church, Paul's not talking about how you will be saved. He's talking about how you know that you've been saved. And there is a world of difference. See, this judgment that's going to happen at the end of time is going to be a public one where everyone's works are judged. In other words, the fruit of our lives. But understand, works don't provide the basis for your justification, the reason for your justification. They provide the evidence. The very presence of them indicates that God has done something supernatural in your heart. Listen to what John Stott says. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. So please understand this. Let me say it again. You won't be saved by works, but you won't be saved without them. You can't merely point to a prayer that you prayed when you were a child or a one-time decision you made or that time when you were 12 and you threw that that pine cone into the fire, right? You can't, some public affirmation of faith where you said, I've done my due diligence, I prayed my prayer, and I'm going to go live my life the way I want to live. Guys, that's not faith. That's not biblical faith. See, biblical faith, when it's real, when God has really gotten hold of our hearts and sees our mind and affection, then God begins to slowly but surely work us like a, like a, like a thing of Play-Doh, like our kids would play with, into a, a shape, and he's forming, he's molding, he's changing. We are being transformed. It doesn't happen all at one time. In fact, it takes a lifetime, and, and we call this sanctification. But on that day, those things that God brought forth in your life through genuine faith, through the blood of his son, through justification, God says, this is the evidence This is the evidence upon which I know that your faith is in Jesus Christ. Go back to verse 7. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, here it is, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. 
It can literally be interpreted, God is no respecter of persons. In other words, it doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been in the church, if your parents founded the church, what socioeconomic strata you're a part of, what ethnicity you are. God is going to be perfectly fair in all his judgments. The, 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 what Paul is doing here is he is leveling the field. He's saying whether it's your outward sin, your inward attitudes, all of it laid bare before him that God says, all of you, all of us fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul is pressing in upon us. And when his judgments happen, they will be perfectly fair. Now, let me say something here that's in the text that I want to draw your attention to. Everyone in the history of planet Earth will be judged based upon what we did with the knowledge that we had. We won't be judged based upon the knowledge that we didn't have. So in other words, if someone has not heard the gospel, they won't be held responsible for not responding to the gospel. Romans 1 says they will be judged because they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. What was evident about God and the fact that they are the creature and he is the creator and they have suppressed that truth and pressed it down and wanted to deny it, they'll be judged for that. All of us will be judged for what God has entrusted to us and exposed us to, not for what we haven't. But Paul says, but nonetheless, everyone is still going to be in the same boat. And it's all going to be perfectly fair because God is just. But here's the problem in verse 5. This, goes, this brings us back to, to where we started. Paul says, you have hard and impenitent hearts. In other words, neither the religious nor the unreligious are going to pass muster. And so we have to ask, Pastor Paul, what are we to do? What are we to do? Paul's leveled the playing field. Paul's pointed out whether it's the religious or the irreligious, whether it's by attitude or by action, we all stand guilty. What's the solution? Is it just obey? Is it just try harder? How's that working for you? See, that's the problem. If willpower was the answer, we wouldn't be here, right? We don't need more willpower. What we need is more Christ. And that's what brings us to this last point. Paul doesn't leave them wallowing around in this mess. Listen to what he says in verse 5, or verse 4, excuse me. He says, or... Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because if God were to show us all of our sin and all of our glory at the same time, we would be undone. We would be like Isaiah. Woe is me. We, we would... We would we would disintegrate. We would cease to function. We would be drooling all over ourselves. We would be just stricken low. But that's not what God does. That's not what God does. Instead, what does it say here? God is patient. God is kind. 
God forbears. That means he's patiently enduring with us. He's, it's like we're the two-year-old or the three-year-old and we're learning to walk and talk and eat and go to the bathroom. And God, his whole way is just patient and kind and shepherding. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And we have to ask, why is that the case? Why is God so patient and kind with us? And it's because he wants you. He wants your heart. God desires that no man perish, but all to come to know him. God doesn't take delight in the perishing of the wicked. God issues a call to all of us to turn, to repent, to trust him, to fly to Christ. If you think about, if you've been, just think about your own life. Maybe as we've unpacked this text today, you've been thinking about places where, you know, I've really been putting off repentance in that area. You know, I've really kind of delaying obedience. I think I know what God wants me to do, but I'm fearful. It's hard. I don't want this to be exposed. I don't want it come to light. What will God do? What will happen to me? And Paul reminds us, God is kind he is patient. He is slow to anger. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Think about the people in your life that you are most drawn to. The people that you just, you can share your heart. You can pour out your worries and, and without fear that there's going to be some sort of judgmentalism brought over your life. Jesus, our Savior, is the perfect mediator. He is our perfect priest. But he loves us enough as we pour out our heart to him to say, I'm going to mold and shape and change you because I love you. And I'm kind to you. Because kindness is ultimately what leads us to repentance. Guy, a day, a day of judgment is coming. Makes it very clear here in Romans 2. But we need not fear it. And here is Why? Jesus is the one who threw himself into the path of God's judgment. Just like a wall that was caving in and a mother trying to protect her child from the onslaught and, and, and lays her body over her child to shield the child from the falling rock, God says, I've sent my son to die on a cross so that he could shield you, so he could put his arms around you. So that he could deflect my wrath that was destined for you and to absorb it as his own. So that we wouldn't have to. See, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. When we understand he who knew no sin became sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So who are those Gentiles in your life? Who are the people that you particularly might hold in disdain or resentfulness or anger or bitterness? Maybe it's a group, maybe it's a people, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a thing, maybe it's an institution. But before you go too far down that road, remember the kindness that God has shared towards you in Christ Jesus and pray for your enemies. If they hit you on the cheek, what does Jesus say? Offer them the other. It's the kindness that leads us to repentance. It's going to be the kindness of the church that leads the world to repentance. 
And we pray that God will give us grace. Trust and run to Jesus today, Four Oaks. Let's pray. Lord. Let's pray.